Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, He was young, he was rich, and he was good-looking. Because those three things all seem to go together. Very rarely do you see a rich, young, ugly person. This guy was rich, he was young, and he was good-looking. And he was, by all accounts, successful. He had inherited his money. A lot of it was family money, but uh, he had uh, grown up a trust fund baby. But he had also kind of demonstrated that he was a good guy, ethical, hard worker. He had actually taken the money he had inherited and he had made it grow. And he had grown it in good ways, not not in uh, shady back alley deals, but... uh, In ways that benefited the community. Ways that helped other people. And you would think that this young guy who had just ordered that brand new Italian coupe chariot, two horsepower. (laughs) Which was was, uh, inlaid with Lebanon cedar and had a beautiful Italian upholstery inside. You would think this young man who... Wore designer Jerusalem togas or robes. That this young guy had it all going on. That he had the world by the tail. And he knew what his future entailed and where it lay and where it would lead him. Something troubled this young, rich man. Who was handsome, by the way. Something troubled this guy because there was a question that just kept bubbling up in him. And it was an irritating question because he also knew the answer. He knew it by heart. He had said it every single day as a good Jewish, young, rich, handsome man. Did I mention he was handsome? Every single day he had said this that he just knew the answer to this question but it still seemed it still seemed hollow the answer because part of the answer that he had always said he just didn't know if if he had done enough part of the answer he just didn't know if he had measured up a question that kind of rattled around in his mind was how good is good enough? And it just bugged him. He went a few weeks ago and he talked to the Pharisees and he asked them their opinion. The Pharisees were like the ancient preachers like me. And he went to them and he asked them for input. And he said, how do I get eternal life? Now, this was a common question in ancient Israel, but it's nothing like what we ask nowadays. When we ask, how do I inherit eternal life? We mean, how do I get saved? How how do I make sure to get out of hell and go to heaven? How do I get to that disembodied heavenly experience with God someday? That's what most people who ask that question mean. That's not what 
first century Jews meant when they asked the question. The question they asked, because you got to remember, their understanding of what Messiah was to do and was to be was shaped by the Old Testament, which we sometimes forget to read. And so his understanding about Messiah was the Messiah was the coming king of Israel who would come and rule and reign. He would kick butt, take names, and he placed Israel at the top of the heap. And all the Jews wanted to know, will I be in that kingdom? Will I be on the right side of history when the Messiah comes? Will I be found worthy to be part of the Messiah's kingdom? Or will I be left out like the Gentiles? And the answer is found in Deuteronomy. The Pharisees, they said the answer is found in Deuteronomy. And you've said it since you were a young lad. Uh, the answer is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the neighbor as yourself. Avoid sin. You could see why that answer would haunt you a little bit, couldn't you? There's days when you're a rich, young, good-looking man. That you forget to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. With all your, you did with most. You did with some. But that whole part of that stinking word, all, trips up a lot of people. Especially good-looking, rich, young rulers. And so he had, this, he had this question, am I good enough? rattling around in his brain and it just irritated him. He went to the Sadducees. He asked them and that was a waste of time because they didn't even believe in eternal life. Then he heard about this new rock star rabbi from Nazareth. This guy who was out healing people. A, a man who was feeding multitudes of people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. A guy who they were saying, this man teaches with authority. Very different than Steve Weinkoop. Like when he says stuff, you want to do it. It's different. He teaches with an authority that we have never seen before. And so he found this rabbi. And that's where we pick up. The story that I want to read to you in the Bible, because this rich young ruler who's got this awesome chariot on order from Italy. He's got this question in his mind, am I good enough? How good is good enough? All these things rattling around in his brain. He comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, one of the things that Mark is doing is Jesus has started his trek towards Jerusalem to die on a cross. And Jesus knows it. He's not going there to be crowned king, be crowned Messiah. He's going there to die on a cross and he knows it. And so all these stories where people come and kind of interrupt that movement, Mark wants us to see things in this. And, and as we were looking last week in a passage just a few pages away, the cost of discipleship is great. It reads here, as Jesus started on his way, on his way to Jerusalem, a man ran up to him. And by the way, the man here is our good looking, rich, young ruler. And we know he's rich and he's young because Luke and Matthew fill in those details. 
I'm just throwing in handsome because I haven't met too many rich or young, ugly people. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Don't do that very often, do you? Run up in front of somebody and throw yourself on your knees. Unless you scored a goal in the World Cup. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that word good teacher, we think, yeah, of course, good teacher. Jesus is a good teacher. But look at how Jesus responds. Why do you call me good? We're like, oh, brother, Jesus is doing the whole question and answer game with this poor young guy. Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. And it's like what happens is this word good was not thrown around very often in the ancient world. In fact, when you use this word good, you pretty much only used it to modify the word God. Today, somebody asked me how I was doing. Uh, and they asked me something like, good morning. How are you doing? And I said, I'm doing good, which is poor grammar, I've been told. I'm doing good. Why do you say good? The answer is well. <laughs> That's what they should have said. Um, this is unusual. And Jesus challenges it. And then he says, you know the commandments. You know the answer, Right. And the answer that he goes to is he goes to the ethical part of the Ten Commandments. He goes to the last six commandments. This is the horizontal relationships. This is the relationship between people. He goes and he asks, he says, you know those commands. Have you done those things? He says, you shall not murder. Eh, He's probably not murdered anybody. You shall not commit adultery. He may not be married. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, it's interesting what Jesus does here. He takes honor your father and mother, which is the fifth one, and he puts it at the very end. And I don't know why he did that. He just, you know, he's God and he does stuff. But he also puts in one that he either leaves out, do not covet, the last one, or he changes it to do not defraud. Nobody, there's scholars and they're debating and arguing we don't know. But he asked these things. And then the guy says, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. <laughs> How would you respond? This guy confidently responds, all these I've kept since I'm a, I was a boy. Now, look what happens. Jesus, who got upset about being called good earlier and questioned that, does not call into question the guy's answer. Weird, huh? You would expect Jesus to call into question the answer. Oh, come on. You've lied. I remember. <laughs> you know, but he doesn't. He affirms him. He doesn't challenge that. Instead, he does this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, I want you to get that picture in your mind because the rest of the sermon is going to feel like Jesus don't like you much. Are you so picture Jesus? Loving you. Picture Jesus looking at you with love. Because the rest of this message that Jesus says to the guy doesn't feel very loving. And to an American audience, it's not very loving either. Now remember, you just gave me a gift. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just here to tell you what this says. It says this. One thing you lack, 
One thing. Isn't that interesting? You've done all that. Great. I'll grant that to you. You've been nearly good enough. Remember that question that's rattling around his brain? How good is good enough? Have I been good enough? And he goes to rock star rabbi and rock star rabbi is about to say one thing you lack. (laughs) My ears would perk up. Okay, maybe I'm going to get the answer to my question that's bothering me. Go. Sell everything you have. Remember, he's rich, he's young, he's good looking. And give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Just a thought experiment really quickly. How many of you have more than 10 items in your possession? How many of you have more than 10 items that you like? In your possession. Things that you're not planning on parting with anytime soon. You know, a good exercise is to go to a yard sale of your own stuff <laughs> before you go to other people's yard sales. Because when you go to other people's yard sales, you realize, oh yeah, I've owned this same stuff. And I've sold it too. But there's stuff that never appears on the tables at the yard sale. Right? This guy's saying everything should appear on the table at the yard sale. All of it. Even call up the chariot dealer and cancel the order. Now, is Jesus just in a really bad mood with rich people? Remember, he looked at him. And he loved him. It's not that Jesus has a, you know, he's down on rich people. It's not that Jesus is saying to be rich is bad. That's not even what he's saying. But for this young man, he is appealing to the rest of the Ten Commandments. Because remember what he did? He skipped the first four. He skipped the first four. And the first four have to do you with your relationship with God. And the first one's a biggie. You will not have any other gods before me. It's so interesting how Jesus backs into this. It's almost like he gives the guy hope. And then he yanks it out from underneath him. It's almost like he's saying, you're doing pretty good. Psych, <laughs> right? You ever feel that way with God sometimes? He's saying that the first four, you forgot. You neglected. Because good gifts from God have become ultimate things in your life. And they are idols. They've replaced me. They've replaced God. In fact, we know that's what happened because right here in verse 22, it says, At this the man's face fell. This has been called by scholars the saddest verse in all of the Bible. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, we like Jesus to be gracious and merciful. Aren't you tempted for Jesus to kind of watch it and then wait for a bit and go, Hey, just a moment. (laughs) Come on back. Because he loved him. 
in a few weeks, he's going to die for him in Jerusalem. I mean, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And this young man, because he's wealthy, walks away sad. This is the only person in the book of Mark to reject Jesus' offer to follow him. The only one. Out of everybody that Mark talks about following Jesus, this is the only one that Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And the answer wasn't, yes. Now, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, after this guy's trailing off, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Then Jesus looked at them and said, with human beings... This is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. Saturday Night Live had a sketch about this. No, serious. They had a sketch about this. This passage. Let me read to you the script. It's the John W. Hayward Foundation. And Bill Pullman played the character John W. Hayward, 1996. Saturday Night Live. And he walks out on camera and he says, Hello. I'm a very wealthy man. I'm worth billions and always have been. But I haven't always been a man with a conscience. Time was, I thought my money was all I needed to be happy. But all that changed one day when I came across this book. Held up a Bible in the Saturday Night Live sketch. The Bible. And I saw where it said, It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That passage changed my life. It moved me to start putting my riches towards a worthy cause. And that's why I established the Hayward Foundation. The Hayward Foundation for the development of a way to make it easy for a camel to pass through a needle's eye. I'm not going to hell if my billions have anything to say about it. And I think they do. Let me show you. He walks through a door and he enters into a laboratory that's filled with scientists and camels. He says, we're doing God's work here at the Hayward Foundation. First, scores of desperate third world children brought me all these camels. And then I found all these cancer researchers, made them stop whatever it was they were doing and devote their energies to trying to force these camels through needles. Just like it says in the Bible. I know it sounds impossible, but we have made a lot of progress. We started small. We tried to cram a horse through a drinking straw. The result was pretty ugly and completely unsuccessful, but we learned a lot. Next, we tried parrying a camel into a thin liquid. Then pouring the camel through the eye of a needle. Sure enough, the liquid camel will pass through the needle. But... We think that might be cheating. We've got our lawyers looking into it. But a liquid camel's only part of it. 
I've also invested millions of dollars from my tobacco and pornography industries to build very large needles and very small camels. Unless I've completely missed the message of the Bible, somewhere in here is my ticket to heaven. Then a scientist walks up and he's feeding a miniature camel. And he says, this is a new batch, Mr. Hayward. Aren't they cute? Mr. Hayward, they're cute. Just not small enough. Have them destroyed. So we're working toward a beautiful future here at the Hayward Foundation. We dream of a day when camels pass willy-nilly through the eyes of needles, where billionaire industrialists like myself can look forward to an eternity spent in the pure white light of heaven. Right, fellas? Scientists, yeah. And if we can't get the camel through the needle, we have another plan. We're prepared to spend millions to get that part taken out of the Bible. Don't worry about me. The announcer comes on and says, The Hayward Foundation, working really hard to get Mr. Hayward into heaven. That's a Saturday Night Live sketch. They understand this passage. Mr. Hayward doesn't. You see, there's been all sorts of mumbo-jumbo that preachers and commentators and whatnot have said. And there's this one story about appears in about the ninth century AD, long time after Jerusalem's been destroyed, about there being a gate called the needle and camels having to bend over and get in there. And, and uh, there's another way that they try to get around it where there's an Aramaic word that's spelled a lot like camel, but it means rope. And so a rope through the eye of a needle. And, you know, I, I think what's happening is rich people are trying to figure out a way to get camels through needles. Here's a sticky wicket. Anybody in here rich? I've got some pictures that it's a photo essay that I think is very powerful. Um, the image slideshow. This is a book that appeared a few years ago. What the uh, photographer did is that he went around the world and had people take all of their worldly possessions and place them out front of their home. And then he snapped a photo. Now, in this one, this is a nice family from Texas. Their most treasured possession is their picture Bible, the family Bible that she's holding open. And by the way, there's a disclaimer with this picture. That's not all their stuff. They couldn't get it all out into the street without making the neighbors more angry. But that is the American stuff all out in front of their home. Now, remember, the question is, are we wealthy? Now, the next picture is a family in India with all of their stuff that they own in front of their house. And there's a disclaimer in that picture. That's all of their stuff. Wouldn't you rather have that for moving than what we have for moving? And then the next picture is from Mali in West Africa. And that's their family. Look how enormous that family is. And that's their house and all their stuff. Looks like all their stuff has a job. So I ask us again, are, are we wealthy? When I saw these photos... I didn't like these words from Jesus because it's really easy to go. Yeah, wealthy people. It's hard for them to get to heaven. 
And when you see photos like this, he did another photo essay several years ago, and I don't have any photos, but he, he put together a photo essay of Hungry Planet. And he asked people to put on table in their home all the food that they would consume in a week. And the American table is loaded. But the table in Mali, not so much. And I've said several times that we live in the world history's Disneyland. We are so blessed. In fact, here's the scary part of this passage. You're wealthier than the rich, young, handsome guy that Jesus talked to. Think of all the things you have that weren't even invented yet, that the young man couldn't possibly have. Running water. Indoor heating. A car. Cell phone. All of the things that we take for granted, this rich, young ruler, he would have looked at us and go, holy cow, how do I get wealthy like you? Even the poorest of us. He would think that. So what do we do with this? How do we handle this? How do we interact with this? Because my gut reaction is to say, no, I don't like it. Yes, Hayward Foundation, spend millions, get it out of there. Is Jesus saying, go sell your stuff, give it to the poor and then follow him? Is that his word for all rich people? The answer is no. Some of you are going, whew. Here's the sad thing. The answer is actually harder than you think. Because what Jesus is saying is that anything that is a good thing, that has become a bad thing, because you have made it an ultimate thing in your life, you need to kill it. You need to get it out of your life. Anything that is a good thing that you have made into an ultimate thing, an idol, anything that you would trust more than him, anything that you are depending on more than him. Tim Keller, who's an amazing pastor in New York City, he came up with three flags to know if money and wealth and possessions have become an idol for you. And I thought they were powerful enough, I put them down. Three flags that wealth is an idol to you. Number one, you can't give large amounts of it away. It's, it's a really good test. If you can't give large amounts of your stuff, your money, your goods away, it's a big, huge, glaring red flag that it might be an idol. Number two, you get scared if you have less of it than you are accustomed to having. Like I've said in many other sermons, which is worse news to you, that God is dead or your bank accounts broke? Which is worse news? And then number three, it bothers you when you see someone who has more than you, especially when they have not worked as hard as you. I think Tim Keller's right on, and I think these are powerful flags for us to consider and to keep in front of us and to ask us, am I practicing idolatry with my stuff, with my wealth, 
with my money. Now, let me be clear. I don't like this passage. On face value, it's not my favorite thing in the Bible. It's irritating. It's frustrating. It's scary. And you're like, where's the grace in this passage? And by the way, the grace is all over this passage. The passage is dripping with grace because Jesus says it's impossible to be good enough. Remember what he said? This seems impossible. It is impossible to humans, but to God, it's possible. You see, the answer is that if you have any money, if you have any material possession, it is a object that can spiritually blind you. And cause you not to follow King Jesus. If you have any material possession, if you have any money, if you have any wealth, it can spiritually blind you. It can become a stumbling block between you and discipleship, between you and following Jesus. And Jesus may not be calling you to poverty because there's two extremes that we go to out of this passage one is the poverty gospel. This is what you see in monks and monasteries where they sell all they have. And they take a vow of poverty and then they think, oh, I'm closer to Jesus because I don't have anything. Jesus is not calling this young man to poverty. He's calling him to discipleship. The other extreme is the one we like far more in our culture, and that is the prosperity gospel. That says, hey, God wants to love you and he wants to bless you. And he wants to give you lots of stuff. And so people go around the country selling books, filling auditoriums, telling folks that if you just name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, you can have it. And they fail to read this part of the Bible. Man, I wish I could sell you that. I wish I could sell you one or the other. I wish I could tell you, so go and sell all you got. And that's the test. And next week, we're all going to come back in rags and clothes that are terrible and misshapen. And we're all going to be poor together. Or I wish I could go the other way and say, so just, you know, pray and receive and buy and grab and be happy. And I'm starting to think that there's a tension to live in here. And that Jesus wants to actually speak into our lives through the Holy Spirit. He wants to constantly be meddling with us. He wants to constantly be telling us, you know what? That thing that you've been thinking about all the time and you're not satisfied until you might get it. It's taking on too much importance for you. He wants to be Lord and King. The frustrating thing is that he acts like a Lord and a King. So here's the application. I'm terrible at application. Part of me feels like the Holy Spirit will tell you what to do. Don't listen to me. The only way to root out greed in your life is to start giving stuff away. 
I'm absolutely, completely, 100% convinced that is the only way to start to address greed in your life is to start to give stuff away. Another thing I'm convinced of is it's way easier to see greed in other people than ourselves. I've been here for 11, 12, whatever, how many years, and nobody ever has come to me and said, I am greedy, help me. Ever. Somebody could do that. It'd be a firsty. It'd be fun. (laughs) And don't be joking about it because I may take you up on it. The only way to root it out is to give stuff away. And if you don't trust me and you don't think, man, you're just on your high mighty horse and you're just guilting me and you're just trying to build a building and you're just doing all this stuff. Tim Davis at the Lutheran Church will take your checks. He will. He's a good guy. Fun guy. He's got a Harley. Give him money. If you don't think it should be me in this church. There's TV shows about dogs being abused in the world. Send them money. There's better causes in my mind, but I'm not trying to be mean or anything. You can send money to Jesus or to dogs. I don't care who you send it to. Just start addressing greed in your life. One final thing. I think that whenever I talk about money, it makes people squirm and they freak out. And I want you to know this. In the 11 so years I've been pastor of this church, I have absolutely no idea what any of you give. And I never have. And I never will. I don't want to know. That's between you and God. Now, obviously, somebody in our church has to know. But I want you to know, it's not me. I've never known. And frankly, I don't care. It's not my business to know that. God knows. God knows if you're greedy. God knows if it's an idol. God knows if he's more important than your stuff. See, at the heart of this, do your good things that you have, have you? Do they possess you? Do they shape you, mold you, concern you far more than the kingdom of God? That's a question worth wrestling with. That's a question that we will never, ever completely settle either. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these good folks. Thank you for their generous hearts. Thank you that so many of these folks give faithfully to this church. And not just here, but to so many other things. To needs that arise in our community. To organizations in our community. Thank you that this is a generous place. And these are generous people. Thank you as well. That you don't let us just pat ourselves on the back, break our arms doing it. That you challenge us to wrestle and wonder. Are we following as near and dear as we could? 
I pray, Father, that each of us would hear from you, that we would listen to Holy Spirit, and we would trust what you speak into our hearts. You would deal with us on a heart level, and we would know how to act. Help us, Lord, to understand that material goods blind us spiritually. Help us, Father, in your gentleness and in your love to remove those blinders. We ask these things in the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Because after you get your tail beat, you need it. May each of us know what to do with this passage. Amen.